Funding for this edition of Think Tank with Steve Adubato has been provided by the Terrell Fund, supporting reimagined child care. RWJ Barnabas Health. Let's be healthy together. New Jersey Sharing Network. The Healthcare Foundation of New Jersey. The Northward Center. PSENG. Committed to providing safe, reliable energy now and in the future. PSC, where your story is our business. Wells Fargo. And by NJ Best, New Jersey's 529 College Savings Plan. Promotional support provided by NJ.com, keeping communities informed and connected. And by BestofNJ.com, all New Jersey in one place. We are honored to be joined once again by our good friend, Ellie Honig, who is the author of Untouchable and CNN Legal Analyst. Good to see you, Ellie. Steve, thank you for having me. Always great to be with you. This feels like a homecoming. You're the king of New Jersey media. I'm a Jersey guy through and through, so I love chatting with you about this. And you're going to understand this book in a way that not everyone will, because a lot of this is New, Jer New Jersey, New York, you know, uh, uh, connections that we make here. And Ellie has a strong New Jersey roots, Rutgers connection, New Jersey connection. Often when you see him on CNN, you see them at, from New Touchin, Metuchen, New, New Jersey. Jersey. That's right. Putting Metuchen on the map, exit 10. <laughs> you got it. Hey, listen, untouchable. The core message in this book as it relates to our justice system is? So I, look, this is a big question that people have been asking forever. How do powerful people get away with it? I've been asked it a million times. That's why I wrote this book. And the answer is really, it comes down to three factors. One, our system itself has various advantages, loopholes, whatever you want to call them, that favor powerful, famous, uh, wealthy people. Two, the smart and savvy bosses out there, whether technically bosses or not, know how to exploit those vulnerabilities. And three, prosecutors don't always do the best job. Prosecutors sometimes pull up short, pull up lame. Even though I was a longtime prosecutor in New York and New Jersey, I'm quite critical in this book of tactics that we've seen from various prosecutors over the years. So when you take those three factors and combine them, I think that's as close as we can come to an answer, a comprehensive answer as to how so many powerful people get away with it. So in Ellie's book, um, by the way, we're taping literally a couple of days before the book is out. Um, check out uh, Ellie's information. We'll make sure people can get to the book untouchable. So here's the thing. You talk about figures like Donald Trump, Jeffrey Epstein, Harvey Weinstein, Bill Cosby, but then you've got Bill Clinton and let's do this. We're taping at a very funky time. You can include President Biden in this as well. As it relates to classified documents, we don't know how it's going to play out. Here's my question. Yeah. You've said that in many ways that the judicial system, that the justice system deals with some of these high-powered, very often influential, sometimes money, influence relationships, that they act like mob bosses, and you make it sound like we need the RICO statute 
that Giuliani <laughs> used back in the day and others to get to the real lead. Like, is it yeah. that comparable? It, you know, what jumped out to me, Steve, is I was an actual organized crime prosecutor in New York City. So I actually prosecuted my bosses. I know Southern District. Southern District, New York. That's right. So I did Genevieve Scambino family cases. And I tell a lot of those stories in the book, A, because they're fun and interesting and entertaining, but B, because as I went back through them, I saw so many parallels to the tactics that powerful people actually use. I'll give you one example. Everyone knows that rich people can pay for your dream teams of lawyers, right? O.J. Simpson's a famous example. I talk in the book about how a big reason Jeffrey Epstein beat his first set. He didn't beat, but he got a very, very light disposition down in Florida when this case first came up in 2008 was he hired this team of Alan Dershowitz and Ken Starr and former U.S. attorneys that just overwhelmed the prosecutor down there, Alex Acosta, who went on to become one of Trump's cabinet members and then resigned because of this. So everyone knows that rich people can and do pay for high-powered legal teams. No, no big revelation there. But here's a little more subtle thing that jumped out at me. I noticed that in my mafia cases, it was very common for the bosses to pay for and provide the lawyers for everyone on the indictment. So I tell a story about a case where the 14th guy on the indictment wanted to flip, but he couldn't. Because, right, and we list them in order of most to least powerful, not alphabetical. Um, he wanted to flip, but he couldn't because his lawyer was being paid for by the bosses. And he knew if he flipped, he'd be in trouble. So you know what he did? I don't want to give too much of the story away. He sent his girlfriend to us as a sort of backdoor courier. And we had to go through this complicated process to get him an unconflicted lawyer. Okay, that's a mob tactic, but that's also an everyday tactic that corporations, big companies use all the time. Now, it's not necessarily evil or wrong. Sometimes, a lot of times, people want to have their lawyers paid for. But what it does do is it makes it harder for those people to cooperate. I mean, we saw examples of this with Donald Trump, with Cassidy Hutchinson, right? She was the star witness in the January 6th uh, hearings that went on. She's now been talking to prosecutors. She wasn't able to come fully clean until she broke free from her Trump-funded lawyer and got herself an independent lawyer then she became a powerful witness. But that's rare and that's hard to do. You know, Elias, I'm listening to you and thinking about the implications of this. I mean, the, the, using the cliche, a, a two-tier justice system. Well, no, I don't want to say, you know, SH. Well, yeah, we know that, okay? There's a, two, a two-tier justice system. But you're talking about that the tiers are so far apart yeah. that those who do not have the means, that do not have the money, that do not have the influence, do not have the relationships and can't lawyer up everybody around them. Right. That's one what great- about e- the rest of them slash us? Yeah, so that, that's one great example, I think, of a subtle tactic that these folks use. There are so many other things. I'm gonna give you another example. And again, this is not an opinion. If you look at the Justice Department's manual, we call it the Justice Manual, it used to be called the U.S. Attorney's Manual, it specifically says that if you're working on a case that's likely to draw national media attention, you have to run that case up higher and higher levels of approval. And in the book, I give two examples. One of them was when I was a federal prosecutor in New York. We had a mob case where one of the people caught up in a gambling ring with the Gambino family, I don't say his name in the book, I won't say it here, maybe I'll tell you afterwards, Steve 101, was a famous Major League Baseball player, okay? I say in the book, you would know his name if you followed baseball. If this was not a famous person, we wouldn't have even thought twice about it. I would have handled the case. I would have made the decision myself as a fifth-year prosecutor, whatever I was at the time. You would have brought the case. You would have brought the case. Um, I don't know. I No, I think it's a close call whether I would have brought the case. But the okay. point is, it would have been up to me. And nobody would have reviewed it or weighed in. Because, Did you have to kick it up? Did exactly. you have to kick it up? Yes, because it was a famous 
influential person. It went up and up three or four levels higher than me. And as a just a mathematical proposition, the more higher levels of review, the more chances there are to say no, to say, I don't see it. And I'll give you a Jersey example here from my time at the AG's office. And I can say this because it's public. We did a whole series of Sandy fraud cases, right? People who put in for benefits Hurricane after Superstorm Sandy. Sandy. Yeah, right. Hurricane Superstorm Sandy. There was millions and millions of dollars made available to people who had lost their homes. There was a specific program designed for people who had lost their primary homes, okay? If you have nowhere to live. What happened was we brought at the AG's office over 100 cases, probably over 200 now, of people who lied in, the, in that application. Either The most common scenario was they had a shore house that they lived in two months yep. a year. They claimed that was their primary and that, you know, but that's a fraud, right? Because it, it wasn't meant because for Because it was that. for primary homes, not secondary homes. Exactly. So we were churning these case, cases out of Trenton and getting, you know, guilty pleas across the board until we came across a case for a staffer, and this is 2013 or 14, in the office of Governor Chris Christie. Now, Steve, I know you will remember the political climate in New Jersey at the time. Chris Christie was our governor. He was gearing former up to US run attorney. for president. Former, former US, US attorney. attorney. He was getting ready to run for president. And Superstorm Sandy, his response to it, that was a key factor that he was pushing in his campaign. Now, it's not his fault. He didn't know about it. This was a fairly low level. This wasn't, you know, this was, but it was someone who worked in the governor's office. You can, I forget the name of the person, but it's it's public, it's Googleable. And again, these cases, we were just churning, churning, churning. But when we had this one that was gonna land in the governor's office, it came up to me at the head of criminal, criminal justice. It went up to the AG. We spent months, literally months, agonizing over this case. Whereas if this was not a person close to close to the governor, working for the governor, we would have just been like, yep, yep, go, 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 boom, boom, boom. Yeah. Now, we brought the case, we brought the case, but but much more scrutiny, yeah. But here, here's the thing. The, the, the other cliche, nobody is above the law. Yep. The Richard Nixon case, President Nixon case was supposed to tell us that his vice president at the time indicted, has to drop off the yep. ticket. Um, Spiro Agnew, um, Trump, not above the law. Clinton, not above the law, yeah. um, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But you are saying that in many cases, that is an expression. It is a cliche. It is not a fact that the implication, Ellie, of what you've written in Untouchable, by the way, the book is Untouchable, go out and get it, is that there are people above the law. And yes. if they're not above the law, that in order for the law to work and the justice system to work as it's supposed to, there are lots of hoops and barriers and obstacles that just do not exist with the vast majority of the rest of us. Exactly right. Exactly right. And, you know, I say in the book, like, look, we prosecutors, we love our cliches. We love our sayings. Nobody's above the law. We, we without fear or favor. But that's not really true. That's what we aspire to. And, and largely achieve it, but not when it comes to the most powerful. And I'm glad you mentioned those historical examples, because one of the big questions that we're all grappling with is, can and should a president ever be charged in this country? What do you it's think? It's obviously never think? happened. I think a former president, yes, if he's committed a crime, can and should be How charged. About a sitting I, president? Because so, right now, as we speak, yes. we're going to date ourselves. There's a special prosecutor, <laughs> if I'm not mistaken. Two. America <laughs> on has two, two. Okay, Biden so, and Trump, yeah. Do you distinguish between prosecuting a former president, Trump, versus a sitting president as we speak, Joe Biden. Go ahead. I do, yes. I, th I think those are different outcomes for me. Make I think it's case. fine. Yeah, so 
here's the thing. DOJ, it's often said DOJ cannot indict the sitting president. That's not quite right, as I point out in the book. The more accurate way to say it is DOJ has long decided that it doesn't want to try to indict the sitting president. This dates back to Watergate. DOJ did research back in the 70s, 73, and wrote a memo saying it would be unconstitutional to indict the sitting president. Now, the it's really not a legal document. It's a public document. It really doesn't get into legal. It really is just a question of, but how the heck would our country operate if we had a president under indictment? And I think that just as a practical matter, to indict a sitting president would cause our executive branch to, to maybe not grind to a halt, but massive complication. And by the way, the solution should be either that president gets impeached and removed from office and then and then prosecuted, or you wait till he's out of office and then prosecute him. And I argue in the book that the statute of limitations, that the time limit should be frozen while the president's in office. But now, Ellie, I'm going to push yeah. back. Before you go any further, yeah. I'm going to push back. Sure. Because Richard Nixon resigned. Yes. But if it had been a different political environment and a culture, no. and Congress was, in fact, had people in it who were Republicans who did not stand up to Nixon and tell him, you've got to go, but it is the way it is today, say that members of Congress were not going to move on the president to impeach or attempt to impeach the president or to have that president resign. How could you then say that prosecuting that president is not a viable option if there is no other option? So Nixon, of course, was never prosecuted because of the pardon from Gerald Ford. But it was um, a cover-up that he could have been prosecuted sure. for. Oh, it could have been, absolutely could have been. And I actually went back and did research and, and it was, you know, it's almost a foregone conclusion now that he wouldn't have been, but he actually, it's quite clear to me now looking back that he probably would have been prosecuted. Okay. I think the answer is, this is an intersection of politics and law. And we had a situation like this. We just had a president who was impeached twice, not convicted either time in the second one, especially the January 6th, despite overwhelming evidence. I think the answer is, if we have a situation like this where people are unwilling to remove a president of their own party, which may well be the status quo from here on out, then prosecutors have to wait till the person's out of office, either finishes his term. Because if you if you play out, how would it work? Are we going to have a trial of a sitting president? Are we going to have an imprisonment of a but sitting Ali, president? What about a foreign president who's planning for running for president again right. with a current well, president under investigation yes. who's likely to be, and we don't know how it's going to play out, the opponent of that previous president who's now trying to run <laughs> again in 2024? Yeah, that's exactly the scenario we're in right now. I think as a matter of policy, look, this is a good example. You can't indict. Look, we don't know whether Joe Biden committed a crime. We don't, frankly, know whether Donald Trump committed a crime. Should he at this be point. investigated by a special prosecutor yes. outside the attorney yes. general and the Department of Justice? Yes, as to both. Um, Go ahead. Donald Trump, I think, for fairly obvious reasons, he, he both with respect to January 6th and the documents, I think there's more than enough of a basis there for prosecution to be necessary. I think special counsel is the right move. I actually fault Merrick Garland for taking way too long. My last chapter in the book is called Waiting for Garland, play on Waiting for Godot, um, or Waiting for Guffman, if, you, if you're more into the recent satire. He's taking way too long, but he's finally done the right thing. Now, you hit on an interesting point there. As we get closer and closer to the 2024 election, when Trump's going to be in it, I don't think there is no legal bar to that, but it makes the task of getting a conviction way more complicated. As to Joe Biden, absolutely has to be a special counsel. The reason you appoint a special counsel, it's not punishment for somebody. It's because there's a potential conflict of interest. And if you say there's a conflict of interest in prosecuting Donald Trump because he might run against Joe Biden, then there sure as heck is a, is a conflict of interest with Joe Biden's DOJ investigating Joe Biden. And now we have this news about Mike Pence that's come out as well. There's classified documents in his house. So we'll see what DOJ does. So, so here's the thing about President Biden, and it's not just President Biden and former President 
Trump. It, it also ties our judicial system and the, le the legal system to our political environment. Yep. So when, when the argument is, hey, wait a minute, um, you can't potentially prosecute Donald Trump if you're not going to potentially, well, what are you going to do with Biden? Well, wait a minute, right. aren't the cases individual? No, no, but we have to look at it in the political environment. Okay, yep. fine. Then I turn around and say, as a student of media, as someone who often coaches people not in government, but in the private sector, on, on their leadership skills, which there's a point here, trust me, to be more forthcoming, disclose yourself. Yeah. Don't be on the defensive. I'm sitting there going, why is the Biden administration not, and why didn't they disclose what they knew when they knew it? Yeah. And the response is, well, the lawyers told them. That's a ridiculous legal strategy. You hand it over to the appropriate parties. You don't share it with the American people. Drip, drip, yep. drip. And I'm arguing a not a political strategy, but a leadership strategy, which is a smart communication strategy, is get it all out there. And totally. I'm told by my lawyer friends, Steve, you don't understand how it works. You can't do that because the lawyers would kill you for it. I'm thinking, no. is the legal strategy and the leadership strategy slash political and communication strategy that far apart? I know there's a question there somewhere. I disagree with your friends there. I actually think that in this instance, the, the PR strategy, the leadership strategy, and the legal strategy are aligned. And the problem is, the good news is Biden apparently tried to be transparent and to come forward. The bad news is he's done a ha he's done an inept job of it. His team has done an inept job of it, right? Making incomplete announcements. And by the way, the public reporting is that DOJ took note of those incomplete arguably misleading statements. And that's one of the reasons they appointed but Ellie, I'm sorry, a special when, I'm sorry, when the president says, yeah. President Biden says, I'm, I'm doing what my lawyer told me to do. Seriously, that's why you're elected president to do what your lawyer told you to do? That doesn't right. sound forthcoming to me. Yeah, I mean, look, the, the, the good advice here would have been like, let's make sure we get a handle on all of this and then put it all out there all at once by far. I totally agree with that. Um, look, and, and you raised another interesting point. In a vacuum, on paper, one can note the differences, factual, important factual differences between the Trump scenario and the Biden scenario. One can also note many similarities. There's both. And what a prosecutor should do by the book is go evaluate them. And, and it could well be that one is chargeable and one is not. However, I'm a big believer, and I argue in the book, you know, as they say in sports, they don't play, they don't play the game on paper. Um, even Merrick Garland, who tries to put himself out there as the world's least political person, he's political. He's been appointed to the federal bench. He was nominated to Supreme Court. He was nominated as AJ. You don't get that if you're not political. He has to be aware of the appearance and the reaction of the public if one gets charged and the other doesn't. I'm not saying they both have to end up in the same boat, but he's not. he can't be ignorant of that reality. Perception matters. Yes, it does. Uh, Ellie Honing, New Jersey's own, Matuchin's <laughs> own. You got CNN. it. Senior legal analyst and the author of a compelling new book called Untouchable. Ellie, my friend, thank you for joining us. I'm sorry for keeping you so long, but that's what happens when the conversation is so interesting. Thanks, my friend. Thanks, Steve. Thanks so much. It's always, we could go forever. <laughs> Good to talk to you. You got right. it. Stay with us. We'll be right back. To see more Think Tank with Steve Adubato programs and to listen to Think Tank with Steve Adubato, the podcast, visit us online at steveadubato.org. If you would like to express an opinion, email us at info at caucusnj.org. Find us on Facebook at facebook.com slash PhD, And follow us on Twitter at steveadubato.
What is your child's dream for the future? Doctor? Teacher? Architect? Whatever they aspire to be, a college education may realize those dreams. And NJ Best can help. It's the college savings plan specifically designed for New Jersey families. Start saving today with as little as $25, because now is the time to invest in their future. To learn about NJ Best 529 College Savings Plan, its investment objectives, risks, and costs, read the investor handbook available at njbest.com. At the Terrell Fund, we know childcare creates transformative early learning experiences for young children and helps families succeed. Childcare is essential for the economy, driving financial growth and sustainability across all sectors. The Terrell Fund envisions a New Jersey in which every infant and toddler has access to high quality, affordable childcare in order to grow, develop, and thrive. Our children are our future. For more information, visit TerrellFund.org. We're now joined by the Senate Majority Leader in New Jersey uh, and the Senate uh, State Senator Teresa Ruiz. Senator, thank you for joining us. Thank you for having me again. Senator, you were on a previous segment talking about child care. You're a leader in that fight, but you're also one of the most influential members of the legislature on education issues as the former chair of the Senate Education Committee. I want to ask you this about learning loss. You've talked about it extensively. There was an editorial in a Star Ledger slash NJ.com recently that quoted you talking about learning loss. Help us understand this. Is the department, as we speak right now at the end of 2022, is the Department of Education accurately and timely releasing information about student learning loss in New Jersey as it relates to the pandemic? No. So unfortunately, the information came out later than expected. And uh, I don't think it's it's as disaggregated as, as we need it to be. But that being said, what we do know is that we have 50 plus percent of the general population in third grade not meeting grade level expectations. So at this point, districts, parents, and, and the state could formulate that we have a crisis. We thought the pandemic was the issue for me. The learning loss and the impact is, is extraordinary. The fact that we don't have a, a, a daily briefing with the heads of state talking about how we're gonna mitigate this to improve the outcomes for this next generation will be something that all of us who are watching this or talking about it will have to pay for in years to come if we don't make the investment now to save this generation of students. Senator, what's standing in the way of that? I mean, we are taping this. This will be seen early in 2023. It'll be three years as of March 2023. Why wouldn't we have that information? Why would God, I'm sorry. So I, I can't answer you because anyone who knows me, if, if I were in charge, I'd be completely <laughs> And I do know on, you. <laughs> I would be completely focused on education and, and gearing a lot of our funding towards this. You know, this, so I want to be very clear, this, so what we did see was that COVID impacted learning loss and it, and it, and it bled into different zip codes, but that what it also elevated was that New Jersey has been facing an achievement gap that predates this administration. The one thing that is different is that we have a once in a lifetime opportunity with the federal billions of dollars that have come right. into the state and into our districts. And so what I'm asking is for a rapid fire response. Let's, let's do this in the same way when we were talking about saving lives who, who had been exposed to, to, to COVID. Let's approach it in that same way. Let's eliminate all those levels of bureaucracy. Let's call it for a state of emergency. We know what good practices have. We have brilliant minds and our teachers here in the state of New Jersey. Let's bring them to the table and let's start just taking a common sense approach to what government should do on behalf of all the families in the state of New Jersey. 
Quick follow-up, this is risky to do this, but I'll do it anyway. This may be uh, out of date, but we're taping again at the end of 2022. As of now, Senator Ruiz, what has been the response of the Murphy administration to what I know, because I think I know you pretty well, your very strong communication and messaging on this issue and what they need to do through the Department of Education? What has been the response to date? Unfortunately, I think it's been too slow. And so the response while we're talking about now setting up a, a, a policy table with, with the best minds in the state to talk about teacher shortages, we know that we've put forth several pieces of legislation. Let's just get those regulations in place. Let's eliminate the teacher residency requirement in the state for some time frame so that we have neighboring people who want to come in and teach to fill those vacancies and there's gaps. We know that high-dose tutoring, when it's done properly, is working. We should have instituted that several years ago. So I just think that what's hugely missing is that sense of urgency that existed at the beginning of the pandemic. One, one more quick question on this. I've never asked you this. We've had other of your colleagues talk about this on both sides of the aisle in the Senate. But I, I need your perspective on this, not just as a, a ranking member of the legislature, as the former chair of the um, committee on education, education committee in the Senate. But you've had many of your colleagues come on, and I'm not going to name them because you know who they are, that are saying, hey, what's up with this critical race theory? What's up with sex education in our schools? We need to put more pressure on boards of education. We need parents more involved in curriculum. Parent involvement, my wife and I, involved. You, as, you and your husband, very involved. But where is the line from your perspective as to what is inappropriate and not particularly helpful involvement of those who are saying, ban that book, I don't want race, critical race theory taught, they, et cetera, et cetera. And what's up with sex education and health? Loaded question, I know, Senator. So I, th this, this is my stance. I want my child to be exposed to the truth in, the his, in, in, his, in this history of, of, of this country, whether it's good, bad, or indifferent, and sometimes really hard to swallow. I, I didn't understand the relationship of Puerto Rico in this country until I was in college and, and post that, doing my own due diligence. Many times, many of us were categorized in, and I'm dating myself, you used to have that history book, and then you would have that little box off to the corner that would talk about contributions of so many people in this country that get put in a subtext as opposed to having a whole chapter or a whole book just completely written about it. So completely leaning into to teaching the truth, um, whether some of that will be uncomfortable, but it is what it is and we shouldn't shy away from that. When, when it comes to health matters, I want a, 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 I want a responsible adult um, exposing my child to science-driven health data and facts, if that's going to make her uh, have her make better decisions in life. And of course, I'm going to engage in those discussions. But what's clearly important in here is that if you do not feel, right, that this text from a health perspective is appropriate, there are opportunities for you to still opt out. Opt you don't out. have to participate. Now, on the historical side of it, there no. isn't that. But let's not shy away of how this country was built. We should engage in those conversations. We don't learn what has happened in the past. We don't learn or understand that 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 some people have had greater opportunities because of generational wealth. We can't have a truthful discussion about policy or about who we are in this country. Yeah, we don't get to opt out of history. Uh, State Senator Teresa Ruiz, the Senate Majority Leader from the 29th District. Senator, thank you so much for joining us. We appreciate it. Thank you for having me. You got it. I'm Steve Adubato. Thank you so much for watching. We'll see you next time.
Think Tank with Steve Adubato has been a production of the Caucus Educational Corporation. Funding has been provided by the Turrell Fund, supporting reimagined childcare. RWJ Barnabas Health, let's be healthy together. New Jersey Sharing Network, the Healthcare Foundation of New Jersey, the Northward Center, PSCNG, PSC, Wells Fargo, and by NJ Best, New Jersey's 529 College Savings Plan. Promotional support provided by NJ.com and by bestofnj.com. To see more Think Tank with Steve Adubato programs and to listen to Think Tank with Steve Adubato, the podcast, visit us online at steveadubato.org. If you would like to express an opinion, email us at info at caucusnj.org. Find us on Facebook at facebook.com slash PhD, and follow us on Twitter at steveadubato. What is your child's dream for the future? Doctor? Teacher? Architect? Whatever they aspire to be, a college education may realize those dreams. And NJ Best can help. It's the college savings plan specifically designed for New Jersey families. Start saving today with as little as $25, because now is the time to invest in their future. To learn about NJ Best 529 College Savings Plan, its investment objectives, risks, and costs, read the investor handbook available at njbest.com. At the Turrell Fund, we know childcare creates transformative early learning experiences for young children and helps families succeed. Childcare is essential for the economy, driving financial growth and sustainability across all sectors. The Turrell Fund envisions a New Jersey in which every infant and toddler has access to high quality, affordable childcare in order to grow, develop, and thrive. Our children are our future. For more information, visit turrellfund.org.